Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is finally here. When this episode launches, it is a day away from our season opener. I don't know about you, but I've been dying for this moment. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and we are going to be talking about something today that is extremely important leading into the opening day of archer season. That's tracking. Uh, I heard a statistic the other day that I'm going to say was backed by some pretty significant evidence saying that the recovery rate in archery is somewhere between 50 and 60%. And when you think about that, that's almost half the time when a deer is shot with a bow and arrow, it is not recovered. That's not good. Nothing about that is good for our sport. Nothing about that is good for uh, psychologically as a bow hunter. I mean, that weighs on you when when something like that happens. Now, I understand that mistakes happen, and we're human. There, there's a lot of variables that come into play when you're shooting at game, especially with the bow and arrow. And, you know, we want to make sure that when those mistakes happen, you're prepared. You know how to handle them. And this week we talked, I visited with uh, a a friend of mine. Uh, I I would consider him a friend now. I've been really, uh, really glad to know Otto Schick. Um, I know him through some friends I went to high school with. And first time I I met Otto, he came out with his dog, Otis on a track for a friend of mine and I got to talk with him and I've, I've since talked with him on the phone a couple other times asking him questions and just picking his brain because he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to um, tracking deer and understanding deer behavior and and uh, the, the time and duration you need to wait for shot placement and how <clears throat> you know determining th- things and, and coming up with an hypothesis a very, very educated hypothesis of what might have happened during the shot sequence based on how the deer reacted and what the arrow looks like and maybe having an idea of what you hit based on those things. And that's something that comes with experience. And Otto is somebody who has that. So <clears throat> I visited with Otto this week. And before we uh, started our, our conversation on our podcast, Otto took me for a, uh, a trial run track with his dog and he showed me how a, a mock track is run and how the dog worked that and it was really eye-opening for me to watch that 
and then also it, it allowed me to ask him a couple of uh, questions that maybe I wouldn't have even thought to ask because I was able to see the dog working uh, in, in very short order. So <clears throat> I hope you're well prepared, and I hope that you do not have to call a dog tracker whatsoever this year for your hunting season. I hope you can watch him drop uh, when you release that arrow. But in case you don't, if you run into a situation where you need a dog tracker, thankfully the state of Pennsylvania has allowed that to be legal now. It's been the past couple of years. And what an asset, what, a, what an awesome thing for us to be able to utilize the nose of a dog to recover wounded game. And it just opens up a whole new, <clears throat> whole whole new potential for us as bow hunters in the state of Pennsylvania. So, hats off to that. I have been practicing my tail off as much as I possibly can. You know, for for some people that might not actually sound like a lot coming from me because you know I'm I'm still you know working and and dad and doing all these things. And I I, I do want to say. All of you who listened to last week's episode, uh, thank you. And I was blown away by how much response that I got from that episode. And uh, it was it was really great just to see that there's a lot of people out there who are in a similar boat, have a similar outlook on things. And at the end of the day, we're just bow hunters that enjoy creation. And, and that to me, that's all that matters. And there's you know, I could go down a rabbit hole on, on that whole topic, but I, I just wanted to say I was really appreciative for everybody who reached out and just shared their thoughts over the matter and how it obtains to your life, or just thanked me for speaking those truths in uh, in my life. So, appreciate it. Um, but anyway, I've been practicing with my bow as much as possible, and I've... Uh, I'm still stretching. I'm pretty much shooting only broadheads now. I shoot my field points yet because I have my 3D targets yet, and I don't like to shoot my 3D targets up with broadheads. So I do like to practice on my 3D targets just because it's as close as you're going to get to a deer in real life. But, uh, I, you know, shoot those field points. But, I mean, I shoot my broadheads constantly. I found that if something is going to get slightly bumped with my bow, you know, uh, a sight, uh, rest, or some kind of adjustment, the the first time that I'm going to notice something's off, it's when I shoot my broadheads. I feel like you can get away with some stuff with field tips, but I've already, you know, bumped a rest or, or done something dumb and noticed that my broadheads were not shooting as consistent or were shooting off, and then it might take me back in season to just say, hey, what happened here, <clears throat> and reevaluate. But I think it's really important to just shoot your broadheads just because you want to trust that piece of equipment coming out of your bow. Um, I, I do as much as I can to tune my broadheads. This year I'm shooting um, my, uh, I, I still have my, my Bowtech bow with a 340 uh, spine uh, Easton axis arrow. And I, am, I have it tipped with a interlock carbon tuner 100 grain broadhead then it has the I, I don't like those hit inserts on eastern arrows so i have a half in half out aftermarket steel outsert which adds some weight to the the front of my bow or the front of the arrow i should say 
and I, I fletch my own arrows and I run a four fletch. And I've really noticed the past few years when I switched from a three fletch to a four fletch, oh my word, what a world of difference in steering broadheads. You know, that, that broadhead that I'm running is already a very accurate broadhead. Uh, I, I feel like it's, I have so much trust in that for accuracy standpoint that I'm really thrilled with that. And that, that setup's like a 460 to 480 grain setup. And I've, I've shot something similar to that. That's actually on the heavier side of what I've shot over the years. Um, now, on to another topic. I've been really, really intrigued by all the, I, and I, I don't want this to sound negative, but it's it's new, so it's like a hype. Uh, the hype about these heavy arrow setups um, with cut-on-contact broadheads and and you know, quality steel, single bevels, and stuff like that. And I, I say hype, it, it's a hype from the outlook of it. it's new. I, I wouldn't say it's a hype because there's a lot of science behind it. And as you've probably heard if you've listened to my show before, I really love science-based research geared towards uh, the, the topic at hand. You know, I, I feel that way with all the wildlife that we hunt. We need to have good science for managing the species, we need to have, I, I feel I need to have good science about the animal to make decisions in hunting them. So what's really interested in is like the, the Ashby reports and that coming, you know, since 2017 as the Ashby Foundation has grown and the amount of information about arrow penetration and arrow setups has come out. That's a big deal in our, in our, you know, bow hunting world right now and I have no formal opinions about the matter because I don't have any experience and it would be absolutely absurd for me to speak an opinion about it without knowing. I do know that the setup I just described to you that I'm shooting, um, that setup does not go through heavy bone and anybody who believes that they can consistently shoot through heavy bones with that type of setup I do believe you're you're kidding yourself. That type of setup does not go through shoulders, especially the humerus joints and the and the, the radius and the spine. Like it, it just there's not enough power. There's not enough momentum to do that. And you know that's where you get into the controversy of shot angles and placements and and this and that. What I'm extremely interested in is the the principles of heavy arrow setups and high high momentum high penetration setups for instance you know shooting first of all the the accuracy of the arrow is is extremely important and the structural integrity no matter how much or no matter what setup you shoot that is important but then getting into some of the things about shooting an arrow over the heavy bone threshold uh, as far as weight, which I believe is like 650 grains. Shooting single bevel broadheads has impacts. Uh, forward of center in weight has some has has a lot. And there's a lot of things to do. And if if you haven't ever listened to the the 12 factors of arrow penetration, that's been <clears throat> it's been on a million podcasts and stuff. But it originates from Dr. Ed Ashby's um his his reports on arrow penetration, all the research that he did, it's eye-opening. So rather than me blabber about what I think is going to happen when I do it, I decided with my my 
my backup bow, my spare bow, I was going to build an arrow following those guidelines. And it's kind of uh, dumb how it happened. And it, I wasn't planning on going as extreme as I did. It just so happened that the, the, the 250-spine arrow that I picked, for whatever reason, I needed to add a significant amount of weight to the front of the arrow in order to get that arrow to weaken and shoot a perfect bullet hole through paper and shooting with bear shafts and all kinds of stuff like that. So my final arrow setup that I came up with for that bow is totaled in 850 grains with a 300 grain single bevel broadhead up front and 200 grains in the inserts. So I, I bit off a little bit more than I could chew in a sense, or I did more than I anticipated. But now that I have it, I'm going to shoot a deer or two with it this year, hopefully, and I'm going to hopefully start to form an opinion. Um, I don't plan on taking crazy shot angles. I don't plan on doing stupid things with it. I just want to kind of see reaction and uh, just start to form an opinion that I can share with you guys. And hopefully that's going to lead to more questions and lead to some conversation with some other people who just have a lot more knowledge about the physics of arrows and the physics of penetration and help you as a bow hunter make the decision. But whatever, wherever you come from, uh, as we get into this episode, you guys got to understand and know what your arrow is capable of. And you also have to understand and know what you are capable of as a as a shooter, um, not not just your shooting capabilities, but also you handle yourself under the pressure with game in front of you. That's that's critical, and I think we got to be realistic about that. I can shoot the lights out of it on on targets. I get worked up when game gets in front of me. I have to be really really um, cognizant, I guess would be the word, of making sure. I am taking ethical shots at the distances and I'm doing my routine, uh, my shot sequence as closely as possible to make sure I execute an ethical shot because if I can't do that and I push my limits, that's when bad things can happen. So regardless out there, guys, good luck. If you are listening to this on Friday the 30th and tomorrow is our season opener, good luck. Best of luck to you. Best of luck to you the rest of this season. I hope you don't have to go through using a dog for a, a for tracking in any sense. But if you do, this is a fantastic episode on tracking deer and understanding how to handle it and, and prepare yourself with a dog and just some just some general information about uh, tracking with dogs. So before we get to this episode, real quick, shout out to Little Mountain Outfitters. Guys, they are a fantastic bow shop. Those those archery setups that I just discussed with my two bows that I have, that is all because of them. They've they've built arrows. They've uh, helped me with tuning. They've set me up with a ton of equipment, and they're just a fantastic archery shop. I was just in here in there pretty recently uh, doing some tinkering, and they were they were selling bows left and right. They were selling crossbows. People that were just updating equipment fine-tuning and uh, not to mention that I, I was watching people go in and check out all their saddle hunting gear and also their Rambo e-bikes those were things that it's like that last-minute thing people decided they wanted to get and I, I if that any of that sounds of interest to you they are the bow shop in Richmond Pennsylvania to go check out and get that last-minute tune-up 
And besides that, they are a fantastic group of guys to talk with. They're excellent boat technicians. I really think you'll enjoy that experience at that archer shop. So, all right, let's get to this episode. So, it's a beautiful day to be doing this out here. I mean, we couldn't have asked for a better weather day. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. We're looking uh, We're looking over Otto's farm here, and this, this is your ground here too, right? So, I mean, we're looking over rolling hills and alfalfa fields and cornfields, and I'm sure there's uh, there's there's a buck out there hiding for you somewhere out there. I hope so. <laughs> you have anything on camera that's worthwhile this year? Not yet. Not yet? It's early. It's early. Do you usually see see that kind of get better as the season goes on? Like, do you see your property as something that's usually certain times of the year it gets better? The week of Halloween. Okay. Is usually prime time here because the bucks will travel uh, to check out the doe that live here. Okay. So you have a pretty good resident group of doe. Yes. So like, does your hunting strategy when you're, when you're going through the season, do you wait back a lot and monitor cameras or how do you try to approach that? Because like right now it's hunting season and I mean, it was beautiful weather this morning and cool weather. I mean, I'm, I'm antsy to go. When I have time and the weather. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause you're uh, so you're uh, you're a farmer you're an avid deer hunter, and you're, you're a dog tracker. What other titles do you have? <laughs> well, that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> so you, you know, working around time, and you have, you know, hog operations, so you're pretty busy, you know, every every day. I mean, that's pretty time-consuming. Yes, it is. Yeah. How long have you been doing hogs? All my life. Really? My dad bought the farm in 1961. And you've been here ever since, kind of, kind mm-hmm. of took over? Yeah, moved here from Philadelphia. From Philadelphia. Okay. And were you uh were you hunting your whole life then? Yes. Okay. Most of it kind of cut your cut your teeth here. Yep. When I when we moved up here, my parents bought me a BB gun. I shot starlings. Did the dogs eat them? No, I didn't have any dogs at that time. Okay. My uh my grandfather used to always tell stories he he shot sparrows and starlings as a kid the same way. And he I one of the one of the other, the dog would always eat Either the sparrows that wouldn't eat the starlings, or vice versa. It was, I always thought that was funny, but maybe he wasn't hungry enough to eat both, right? I have no idea. I mean, I, I've never eaten one of them, so I don't know what they taste like. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> but we, uh, uh, thank you again, Otto, for having me out. We were uh, no problem. You, you, you know, share your share your place with me, and you're sharing your your knowledge on on track. And we just went through a a track with your dog. Um, but I, I'm kind of curious, when did you? When did you first get exposed to a tracking dog? Well, I was on a bow hunt in Illinois, and uh, my guide had a tracking dog. And uh, his name was Dan Kendall. He's from Miami, Florida. And he goes to the Midwest every fall, and he uh, does tracking for outfitters. Now he has his own outfitting business in Kentucky. And uh, he would tell me stories of different tracks he made for his clients and it was something I was always interested in and uh, I mentioned to him I would like to get into it so he um, he said well you live really close to one of the best tracking authorities in the country and uh, he lives over in Reading Andy Bensing Mm, yeah and uh, so he put me in contact with him and through Andy is how I got my dogs. Okay. And you, uh, 
did you get to go on a track out in Illinois, or you just and, and get no. to see it? No, okay. <clears throat> just uh, the stories that he told me, and that was enough to kind of convince peak, you, pique my interest. Because yeah. you were bow hunting your whole life at that point. Yes, um, I I just listened to a show. It was uh, another show on our network, the Ohio podcast, and they they brought up a statistic, and I I think it was somewhere in the realm of fifty to sixty percent of like a 50%, 50 to 60% success rate with archery equipment. And, I mean, and I've been on some ridiculous tracks over the years, and sometimes they were successful, sometimes, but it's it's part of part of bow hunting. I'm assuming most of the tracks you end up going on are, are, are bow bow hunting. They are, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so. The success rate for tracking, uh, you know, if you take most calls, now we try to screen calls. And if a guy says that it was a shoulder hit or a high back hit, I kind of shy away from them. I never found one of them. Mm. So, uh, uh, you know, and there's some people that will only go out on gut shots. Mm. And you know the deer's dead. And they're relatively easy to find because they leave a lot of scent and you know they're dead. Right. So uh, if you do 20, 25% recovery rate, you're doing pretty good with a tracking dog. Okay. And I'm assuming a lot of the time, like, when when you get a call for a track, most of the time it's probably people doing a last-ditch effort, and a lot of it has been been going through. The and, vast majority is. Man. You know, it's the last resort. So you got connected with Andy, and you got uh, – is, is Otis the first one you had, or have you had a couple? I had one before Otis, yeah. Okay, so this is your, your second tracking dog. Mm-hmm. What 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 kind of dog is Otis? Wire-haired dachshund. Okay. And that's just the the species, or the the breed of dog that. Uh, well, it was more, you know. There's a lot of different ones you can have, and uh, but this is a smaller dog that's not going to drag you up and down the mountain, mm. and um, so I stuck with that dog. And, and it's incredible to to watch him work. I mean, I was on a track with you a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and it was really fun to watch it. And that was an unsuccessful track, and then you took me through a mock track, and I'm. I'm kind of curious. I got a ton of bow hunting questions and arrow questions, but I'm I'm really interested right now in in the dog. So you, when you started uh, tracking him, like today the the track that you had, you showed me you had a, a boot that you put over mm-hmm. your boots that had a a, a deer print in it, mm-hmm. and you said you deer used hoof, a, yeah, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, you used a little bit of blood on the on the track, but you zigzagged across, and and I mean that track was probably three four hundred yards, and mm-hmm. and he made quick work of it, but. How do you, how do you get a dog started on doing that? It starts, <clears throat> excuse me, starts at the puppy age, and you start them out with a liver track, a short liver track, um, because obviously that's rich in blood, mm-hmm. and then uh, you give a reward after maybe ten feet or or along the way, and then you just extend the track farther and farther, and then you get rid of the liver, and you just use blood, and then you graduate to uh, a tracking shoe, something something like that. Right, because obviously a, a liver hit. I mean, a lot of time if it's a it's a, a liver hit, that's something that has a lot of scent. But liver hits and certain hits have a lot of blood, and if, mm-hmm. if there's a lot of blood, I mean, you really hopefully you can follow it on your own. So that you're you got to gravitate towards something where you're mm-hmm. you're able to use a dog because you can't find blood, right? Correct. The gut shot leaves the most scent, in my mm-hmm. opinion, but very little blood. But they leave a lot of scent. Right. Right. It's easier for a dog to find, uh, you know, the scent track, a gut shot, I think. That would make sense. And I've, 
a gut shot is is I've been fortunate and I've never been on many tracks with those. Unfortunately, a lot of the tracks that I've been on that have been unsuccessful were those shots that you kind of mentioned earlier. Those those high, those forward. And that's a that's a common shot missing high is is mm-hmm. happens a lot and it's it's unfortunate. It's part of bow hunting. You kind of that just learning how to aim on deer and the way they react to the bow. But so you you ran liver track. How often were you running tracks in training? Because it's got to be time consuming. Yeah, in the beginning, you know, we would do it almost every day, every other day, uh, once a week, uh, and you just at least once a week. What kind of time investment do you have in it then? A lot, <laughs> <clears throat> a lot of time. So, like, a, start me off on a puppy track. Are, are you letting the dog get on it pretty fresh then? Yes, and then you know you can age it as as the dog gets better and better and better, mm-hmm. and then maybe pick it up the liver and walk a few feet then put it down again so that there's a gap so you're forcing the dog to search for the next uh scent like you would in a normal uh you know track a normal track mm. so when you like liver tracks and is it is, is liver uh deer deer hooves and just a little bit of blood that's pretty much what you're using on most of those tracks yes yeah the uh tell me a little bit more you you you, well, we were watching Otis work, so you, you took me to a place where you had an impact, and you put a little bit of blood there, right? Mm-hmm. And then you let him work, and it was it was kind of interesting. So the the track you took on it was a how how big was that food plot that you took us to? Maybe a half an acre, three quarters of an acre, and uh, it was kind of longer and a little bit more narrow. Mm-hmm. And you kind of went on the, the perimeter of the food plot, and. Uh, it, it, you went a complete perimeter and then came back very close to the site of impact. It was really interesting as, you know, the wind was, I didn't even check, pay attention to direction stuff, but where the dominant wind was coming, it was kind of swirling, but the there was a kind of a crosswind on the track, and Otis kept going um, off of the track and going back, like, I was I was trying to understand what, what he was doing when he was sent, because I was expecting, you know, if there's, uh, a track right there like explain to me what he was doing when he was going off and coming back well scent gets blown and a lot of times uh the dog will work downwind of the track and uh because the scent finger gets blown down that way and maybe there'll be a pool there due to the terrain so he'll go down there and check that out and search come back to the original track and move forward that way and maybe get off in another scent finger uh usually on the side of a hill uh, it's very prominent especially um in the uh if the deer went down or deer went downhill and you know thermals rise in the morning and uh fall in the afternoon so if you're in the afternoon and the deer ran across the ridge that scent is already going downhill so he's going to be lured into going down there checking that scent uh pool out realizing okay that's not the real that's not the track and he'll come back up the hill until he hits the track again and it may be several times up and down until he figures out that that deer went across the top of the ridge it was really that was really fascinating because like i'm in my my very inexperienced mind i'm expecting him to just get on a track and keep following but in that case the, the track you ran today was a little bit of blood at the site of impact and then the rest of the track you used your your uh, tracking shoes tracking shoes i was thinking of the word but they had uh deer hooves on the back and share with me a little bit about that because it wasn't there was something special about those hooves compared to another deer and what where that really showed was when he was on a track there was a section in your your clover food plot that we went across that there was an uh, 
predominant deer trail where deer went in and out within the last probably 12 hours mm-hmm. and uh he didn't even bother with that so if you're if you're on the tracks like tell me like why why was he able to distinguish that so okay. quick because when a deer is hit uh they give off an interdigital scent and it's almost like a waxy material and uh, it's it's uh the adrenaline is it's adrenaline flow from a deer and uh, they'll put out that scent, and the dog picks up on that like a coyote would pick up on a, a wounded deer mm-hmm. or a wolf. It's the same thing. So, and so he was in. So the reason, correct me if I'm wrong. The reason he was circling so much is he was verifying that he was on the right track in that sense. Correct. Yeah, that was really intriguing, and it was it was it was funny because <clears throat> like he would take his time in certain areas. And then once he'd get back and he realized he was on the track, I mean, he kind of took off and mm-hmm. was on the track then. Mm-hmm. And where do you find a lot of the hang-ups? When you're on a track like that, where do you find the dog will hang up the most? Is it most of the time in areas that you were talking where scent kind of pulls and congregates? That and if you would jump a live deer. You mm-hmm. know, that is the biggest challenge for any dog. If, you have a, if you're on a track and a live deer is jumped on that track, not the target deer that you're after, uh, and you see that, you can correct that dog if he goes off on that line. Um, it's something that's really probably one of the biggest challenges of training a dog. Mm. And and another thing that was really interesting, so the, the beginning of the track when you went around the perimeter of that food plot, the the track came back almost to the site of impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, that was within, what, seven yards? Seven, ten yards, yeah. And uh, he kind of holed up there for a while. Mm-hmm. Um I did that on purpose to uh, to test them, okay. challenge him. And I'm sure you've had tracks in the past where deer cross their original mm-hmm. path. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that you commonly see on wounded deer trying to... Sometimes. I was on a track last year, um, uh, a fellow wounded a deer. And it was, on a, it was on a hillside. And we got out of it. We drove up close to the hit site, we, uh, within 100 yards. We got out of the truck, I hooked the, the dog up to his harness, and he immediately wanted to go off into the brush right by the truck. And I wouldn't let him do it. And as we went up towards the hit site, he still wanted to go over there, and I didn't let him do it. So as it turned out, that deer uh, went up that hillside, circled around, and he was dead next to the truck. But because I didn't let him go in there, we never found that deer. Uh, the hunter called me up a few days later and said that, <clears throat> the deer was found in there dead, mm. so that was handler error on my part. Yeah, and I, I mean it's going to happen. That's but you you're very um, uh, I don't want to say you're strict, but you're 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 very uh, pronounced with with handling the dog, mm-hmm. and that, that's probably for good reason because I'm sure the dog can get off on times. Um, are are there cues you're watching as you're watching your dog? Like I'm sure you get to know your dog too over time. Yes, every dog's different. It took me a, a while to learn that. Uh, what what keys to look for when he's uh searching as opposed to being on the track uh with my dog <clears throat> if he stops if i stop him and he looks around that's a key to me a tell to me to, that he may not be on the right track so but if i stop him and he keep keeps wanting to pull in that direction that's a good tell that he's on it mm. how many uh how many tracks throughout a year do you typically end up getting on uh mock tracks or real tracks well i was thinking real tracks i'm sure uh, mock tracks. 20 to 30 
Okay, so 20 to 30 real tracks. But, I mean, to keep your dog fresh, how often do you to do a track? I mean, you said in the beginning when you're training mm-hmm. them, it's as much as you possibly can. Yeah, and even up till uh, he's five years old now. So now I'll, I'll only do it uh, once every few weeks or once a month in the wintertime. When there's snow on the ground or it's bad conditions, obviously I don't do it. I may go a couple months. Mm. But as soon as the snow clears out in the spring, I'll lay a track for him and uh, uh, keep him fresh. Okay. Okay. So 20 to 30 tracks, and you, you what do you say, like 25, 35%? 20%. Okay. Figure 20%. And do you think a lot of the time that's because of the type of the hit, or, or do tracks easily get ruined before you get there? They can be, uh, if a hunter hits a deer and they lose blood and they do a grid search, they're, they're dragging scent all over the place. And it's, the dog has to figure that out. And if, it's, uh, if the conditions are right, if it's damp, uh, cool, that scent sticks to the ground and you can drag it all over. And, and sometimes you'll never figure it out. Mm. But um, it's a challenge for the dog. So there's several things a bow hunter can do or any hunter can do if... Uh, you know, there's any possibility that a dog would be called. And one is to make sure you mark the hit site. Mm. And two, um, when you track blood, when you do go after the deer, when you're trying to trail it, don't walk on the blood or on the trail. Walk off to the side and mark the trail with either a tissue paper or clothespin or something that uh, when the dog handler gets there, there's a clear line of the way the deer fled after the hit. And I'll never forget this. When I was in college, um, I, I was I was a biology major, mm-hmm. and I, we used to have to in our my senior and junior year, we used to have to listen to people give presentations on the internship work they did. And I'll never forget there was one who was a candidate for uh, pre pre med, and he was talking about listening to um, a patient come in and talk about how you know he's he's asking them questions what's wrong and, and you know they're they're giving this whole story of what's wrong and it was funny like he, he gave this long paragraph of the description that the, the person said and then he put next to it in his presentation a couple of very specific points that were only of value to him and I, I that like that resonated in me because I'm thinking about this now from a dog tracker's perspective there's so much excitement and adrenaline that comes into play when you're shooting with a bow or bow hunting in general, hunting in general. And, uh, I'm sure you've got to really, you've got to really, uh, stay focused and, and pay attention to what a person's saying and really kind of steer their conversation. So you collect the information that you need. It's like putting a puzzle together. You have pieces here and there and, the dog and the handler are a team. The handler has to help the dog, and the dog helps the handler uh, to find that deer. Do you, uh, so like when you, if you get a call from somebody, um, walk me through a little bit, like your thought process. Like what, are the, what are the questions you're asking, and what are the things that you're trying to um, pull out of that situation to try to come up with a, a hypothesis or a, a direction to go okay. with this track? Well, I asked the hunter how far away the deer was. Was he in a tree stand or was he on the ground? Because that uh, impacts the way the arrow went through the deer. Did it go impact high and exit low, or is it uh, straight across the body? Uh, then I'll ask him if he uh, saw the impact, where he thought he hit it, 
what the deer did, how, how the deer reacted upon impact and after impact. Did it hunch up and walk away slowly, wagging his tail? Uh, that, those are indicators of a gut shot. Did it mule kick and take off? That's an indicator of a, a, a really solid hit. Um, did it? Did the, the sound of the impact, was it like a, a hammer striking a piece of wood as if the arrow hit the shoulder or heavy bone? Or was it more like a thud? Um, there's so many different things. Um, did the deer uh, run out of sight or did you see Did you see it bed down? Did it slow down after it took off? Um, things like that. And I'm sure you have a lot of opportunity with a lot of people. They call you, you probably get a huge array of hunters from beginners to very experienced hunters. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be opportunity in... in the tracking you do for you to give people advice mm-hmm. when they do stuff. I mean, what's, uh, is there anything that stands out when you show up to tracks that you say, like, this is a common mistake people make after they shoot a deer with a bow in a, in a tracking situation. They, uh, follow up on the shot too soon. You know, they'll bump that deer. And if you, if you know, you shot that gut, uh, the deer in the gut and, uh, you bump them, once or twice, it makes a recovery very, very long, if sometimes not even possible, depending on how mm. how uh, hard you bumped him and, and how bad he was wounded. So that's the most common mistake is people just don't give the deer enough time. Do you have, uh, over, over your bow hunting career and the amount of tracks you've been on, do you have any kind of standard rules you try to go by by certain shots and how long you wait and how you approach the impact site and stuff like that? Well, every deer is different. You know, some deer are really tough and some deer aren't. Mm-hmm. And uh, But a gut shot, I like to wait uh, 8, 10, 12 hours. Um, <clears throat> a liver shot, basically same, 6, 8 hours. So I like to be air on the side of uh, too long and too soon because you don't want to bump them. And if the weather is suitable, if it's cool, if it's cold, it's not going to hurt the deer. Mm-hmm. And you just increase the chances of, re- of the recovery because you're giving that deer time to expire. My experience, when you've, if you hit a deer back in something that's not in, you know, that, that heart, lung, mm-hmm. um, high artery area, and it's going to take some time for that deer to die, as long as they're not bumped, a lot of the time I've found deer within 200 yards of that's, that impact site. That's and true. If you let them go, I mean, they go back to bed. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm thinking of one in particular, uh, fairly recent, actually, and the, the deer was bumped, but where he went back and bedded was in a location that I would expect him to bed. It was a high stem count. It was an area that, you know, you don't go into unless mm-hmm. you had to trail a deer, mm-hmm. and he, he had a a pretty uh, predominant area that there was multiple deer beds in there you knew it was a security area and he probably would have just expired because he didn't know what happened Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's the key point that you just said because when you shoot a deer with a bow uh, the arrow is very very sharp and and there's very little noise so a lot of times the deer doesn't know what happened whereas you shoot them with a rifle you hear the bang you you have that big impact that deer knows it's been shot Mm mm-hmm Whereas with a bow, he doesn't know what happens, and he'll he'll walk off or run off, and then stop, and uh, it's like a bee sting or something like that, and then they they can't figure it out, so they just try to go about their own business, and uh, I don't feel good, I'm going to lay down. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the the shots or, or the deer that don't get recovered are the ones where 
um, you, you get excited, you get you overinflate what you thought actually happened in the shot. Like you, you think you had a real good shot, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you, you push it too quick. You're like, ah, that looked like a double lung hit. I'm going to follow it up within 30 minutes. And I don't go by any rules, but it, it, it definitely seems like if you don't see that deer fall in sight, like at least an hour, I mean, what do you, what do you think? You mean as far as waiting to track? Yeah, like when when it comes to like waiting at least to... an hour, at least an hour, and and then walk over there because at that point in time you give that deer some time to to get out of uh, eyesight. Have you run into Ear tracks? Shot. Yeah, and my my thought with that was sometimes I've seen deer. We, we just talked to. They don't know what happened. They run a short distance, mm-hmm. and then they might be within a visual distance of the impact zone, mm-hmm. and you know if you go over too soon, they could they could see you and absolutely and, and bump them absolutely. Um, I would think you'd have to, I mean, deer is a, a deer is a prey species. And even though, you know, this area of, of the world, we don't have a lot of predators other than humans. I mean, coyotes are a predator. We do have bear uh, and they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're definitely, but it's, it's definitely innate that they're, they're a prey animal and they're, they're, they're trying to cover themselves and, and be safe. Mm-hmm. I, I, you've, you've had to learn a ton about how deer use area and, and, moving through it in, in a track there's so many i've learned more about deer since i've been tracking deer than i in all the years i've hunted deer and you've been i'm sure you've been on a, an array of tracks from immature deer does mm-hmm. and and stuff to a mature buck do you see similarities in 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 a wounded animal and i say a wounded animal let's just say it's a shot that's back and it's going to take a longer time to expire maybe that deer gets bumped do you see similarities in how um, a buck to doe a a mature deer versus an immature deer um, maneuvers through an area on a track or or is there is do you get to see some pretty cool things when it's a mature deer and you go that's why that deer made it to an older age class yeah the mature deer that's in rut he's he's like he's on uh you know he's on uh, uh drugs or something you know he's supercharged and they'll go a long way with a severe wound mm. but if you hit them in a harder lungs a vet told me they have nine seconds to live so if you double lung them or shoot them square in the heart so you have nine seconds, and if that deer runs off at peak speed, he'll make he may go, make it uh, you know 150 200 yards at the most. Or if he just walks away, he's only going to go 50 yards, hmm. 40 yards, 70 yards, whatever it may be. When you uh, and all the tracks you've been on, like how do do you? Do you collect a lot of information, like write stuff down for your memory? Is everything you just keep in your head, like like take notes on tracks and stuff? Um, it's it's mental. I really don't write anything down, but uh, there there's some tracks that have really stuck out of my mind that I would pay to go back and do them over again. It oh, would, really? It was that exciting. I had one last year. Um, friends of ours shot a doe, and they tracked it several hundred yards. And then it crossed a, a blacktop road. They lost blood. And uh, so they called me up, <clears throat> and I started a dog on the road. And he went into a cornfield that was right there. And this cornfield was a, a really long cornfield. And we went through the cornfield all the way out the other end and came back and zigzagged around. And at one point, I thought I saw a deer up one of the rows. But when I stepped back and looked, it was gone. And uh, so we came back. I was going to restart the dog, 
and I did, and I came back in the cornfield again, and uh, there was a little a little rustle, and I looked, and here comes this doe, and she was in the next row, right, charged us. She was in the next row, right next to us, with her head down, staring at the dog. And uh, I yelled at her, and, and she spooked and took off, and we eventually got her. But uh, had it been a buck, it could have been uh, a dangerous situation. Yeah, I'll say. I mean, I don't think because you hear about that too often. The deer knew that he could get, she could get away from me, but she couldn't get away from the dog, and she was just focused on the dog. Mm. You know, like I'm going, I got to get that dog, or they're going to get me, type of thing. Wow. So that was really, really exciting. Yeah, I'm sure a little, maybe a little uh, too exciting at some point. Well, so in that situation, obviously they thought the deer was dead, and it wasn't. So what what happened with that track that that you found out the deer was living longer than you expected? Well, we we uh, uh, we tracked that deer again and uh, further in a cornfield, and and we we uh, saw it laying up a row, and then the hunter came in and uh, uh, dispatched it at that point. Was it? Uh, it was a doe. It was a doe. Was it? So was the shot back? Uh, it was in uh, front neck area. Oh, so did it hit anything lethal? Maybe. I maybe, maybe not. She would have lived a long time. She had. She looked perfectly healthy to me. So she just decided she was going to fight. Yeah, I'm sure. Did she? Did the hunter think that they had a better shot than they actually did? I don't know that. Okay. Um, I can't answer that question. Yeah, I was. I was wondering, like. Was there uh, was there a thought process that maybe I thought my arrow went one place and it? This was over. on uh, the uh, uh, muzzle loading season. Okay. Inline season there. I've seen some weird stuff with muzzle loaders. They're... That was a wild track. <laughs> like, do you? Uh, a lot of the tracks we're talking about right now are, are bow hunting tracks. Mm-hmm. And have you have you seen? And the reason I asked you about like, do you, do you take notes and stuff? I'm wondering, do you see? any kind of pattern arrow setup is a huge thing people talk about now i mean that's like one of the most talked about debated topics Mm -hmm. um like right now there's there's a lot of information out about shooting heavier heavier arrow setups and shooting cut on contact broadheads which are are great but there's a a lot of controversy because i think our the hunting industry has done such a good job marketing with with expandable broadheads and i think the majority of our our uh expandables today I'm, I'm assuming you probably see more expandable tracks absolutely um I, do you have uh do you have any any thoughts on what's a good arrow like are, are there are, i like the i like a sharp fixed blade head four blade head 100 grains okay uh personally i shoot a slick trick uh 100 grain magnum you kind of know what you're getting when you're shooting that right and they're very sharp um, the one thing that I have against expandables, if you have a deer that's quartering away from you, a hard quartering away, uh, that expandable, only the one, uh, you know, as it, as it, uh, ex- the blades expand, it could, it could, uh, kick that arrow off to the side, loses connect, uh, kinetic energy. So mm-hmm. you're not going to have penetration. And do you, when you get called, do you see... How often do you get on a track and you actually get to find it was a complete pass through versus it was just a one one uh, hole? I'd say fifty percent. Fifty percent. So fifty percent of the shots don't get an exit hole that you, you end up getting on. Mm-hmm. 
or the arrow gets pulled out, or you may be sticking through and then it gets pulled out on brush, mm. <clears throat> uh, something like that. Is, uh, is, is, I, I guess, like, there, there's so many different things you, you get, that you could d- debate about this when people talk about arrow setups. I mean, penetration, mm-hmm. perfect arrow flight, uh, sharp broadhead is, is important, but I mean, like, you know, you, you said you shoot a fixed blade, uh, 100 grain slick trick. I mean, how important is the sharpness of the head to you? Very important. Very important. And I think the most important thing is that a hunter can do, and that's any hunter, is you see a deer, you uh, ready your shot, you're going to draw back anchor, make sure your anchor's right, make sure your bow's vertical, uh, take an extra second and verify to make sure you're using the right pin, and uh, you're at the right anchor, and if you're in a tree stand and you're shooting downhill, that you're bending at the waist, and uh, you're not death gripping the bow, and it's all muscle memory. If you practice during the summer, all these things are going to come naturally. So it comes down to you got to prepare for that shot all summer long. Yeah, and there's probably not enough emphasis on that. And, and another very controversial thing, and I'm, I have nothing against crossbows, but it's it's brought a lot of new Absolutely. new new hunters to the to the area. And I, I think that the the issue that you see with hunter like we. You would have went through this in, in your time when when compounds were legalized, mm-hmm. and there was so much uh, controversy over compounds getting started, mm-hmm. and you know people had their negative. It's not archery, and this and that. Now we're kind of going through that with crossbows. I mean, crossbows are within the past 10, 15 years they've been legalized here in Pennsylvania, and I don't think it's when you look at the physics of that arrow delivery from the, a crossbow versus a compound. There's not a lot of differences in that delivery and that system and the energy. Yeah, there's more speed, but I mean the, the the system is very very similar. I think the biggest thing that happens is when you um, allow people an opportunity to shoot with a crossbow and they've never bow hunted. Um, it seems like they, they they've got the bow hunting learn, learning curve, but they don't have the shooting learning curve and learning how to how to handle a bow and and shoot. So in a sense. You're learning to bow hunt with with a a, a rifle platform, and I mm-hmm. think there's probably a lot of times where people shoot uh, maybe shots they shouldn't, maybe it's mm-hmm. uh, angles, this and that that just create a problem when when mm-hmm. they first start out, and that's probably why you've you, in my opinion, I'm I'm mm-hmm. just well, I found that uh, most bow hunters that uh, uh, turn into rifle hunters or rifle hunt or go to a crossbow are much better shots when they go to the rifle or crossbow because with a bow, you don't, uh, if you anticipate the shot, you're not going to be accurate. You have to, that shot has to be surprised. You have to be steady. You have to have a same, you have to have a firm anchor. So it makes you a better rifle shot or a crossbow shot if you've mastered the bow first. And that's tough to do because you, that word anticipation that you just brought up, that, that's a huge thing. And that's why so many people talk about target panic and breaking target panic in, a, mm-hmm. in shooting. Like I, uh, I went through my bouts of target panic years ago. Um, the way I've, fig- I've figured out to train my mind over it is I, I shoot, a, I shoot a, a, a sear release, a hinge release, mm-hmm. and I shoot that now when I hunt. And it's, it's, been, it's been something that I've allowed my mind to train myself how to – when because i get excited when a buck comes i mean mm-hmm. if you're if you're not mm-hmm. why not but i get excited mm-hmm. and i got to do something and have a process to try to not have anticipation mm-hmm. and uh, I, w- I was just talking with a, a friend of mine 
who was asking me questions about why I shoot that type of release and this and that. I was talking about surprise release and why I do what I do. And he was talking about target panic and anticipation. I said, one thing I've learned watching some of the best competition shooters in the world, if they don't shoot a surprise release, meaning they, they are shooting and they're purposely executing the shot, probably one of the most accurate shooters in the world is somebody who cognitively releases that arrow, but they don't have anticipation. Correct. It has to be a surprise. The shot has to be a surprise. Whereas a bow shot or a rifle shot or crossbow shot. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze until it goes off. Uh, and that's it's so and it's easy to do on target, but like you cannot replace reps like no. that experience. Like it's something that you're gonna experience as a bow hunter. But I mean I, I I've gone through my bouts of some some terrible shots and my own mistakes, and I think any bow hunter is going to go through that. But trying to minimize that for people, anybody that listens to this, I mean, mm-hmm. what do you, what are your thought? What's your thought process in shooting? Because there, there's, I've always been trained broadside quartering away, and and trained to um, keep respectable distances and stuff. Take a high percentage shot, and. Uh... Don't overshoot your uh, capabilities. Don't take a shot past your capable capabilities. And in my case, I found that, uh, you know, if I shoot at a bale all summer long and then put a deer target up, it's not the same. You should be shooting that deer target most of the time if you're going to hunt deer. Understand your anatomy, too. Understand the anatomy. Uh, that's a big, like... Stay, you, go ahead. Do you have people that, like, ask you questions on, like, where to aim and stuff? Uh, not, no. Uh, I usually ask them what they were aiming at mm-hmm. so the, the, you know the the biggest advice i can give to somebody that's bow hunting is do not hit the shoulder mm. stay behind the shoulder once your your arrow hits that shoulder whether it's a crossbow or what you are not going to kill that deer because if you look at the anatomy of a deer the rib cage is very wide in the back mm. and it narrows down to the front so what you would think is a perfect rifle shot and would kill a deer every time. If you hit that deer in that spot with an arrow, you are not going to get into that uh, rib cage because it necks down at that point. But if you get behind that shoulder, you've expanded, you're shooting at that expanded uh, rib cage, uh, and your percentage goes way up. A lot of people don't realize, too, um, on the, the, the front half of a deer, the I, I call the, the quote-unquote term the vital V, the way the... Mm-hmm. Um, just to be, you know, be basically from your your elbow to your shoulder, how that bone um, kind of goes forward mm-hmm. and then cuts back to the scapula and covers a, a significant portion of that. It does. And that V has a ton of um, just a massive arteries and 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 the, the core there, and there's a lot of death there. But it's a smaller target, mm-hmm. um, and deer reacting to a bow is a, is a huge thing. I mean, where do you, when you're when you're going through and aiming at a deer. Um, tell me from, from distance, like what, what are you comfortable shooting at in distance? And then how do you handle shooting, uh, or, or aiming at that deer? Well, when, <clears throat> my process with the bow is, uh, I, I will aim low. I always try to aim for the heart, the lower third of the body, because if I want to miss, I want to miss low. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a little bit high, I'm still going to kill him and stay off that shoulder. So you got to remember an arrow kills by, uh, cutting. A bullet kills by shock yeah. and destruction. So that's why you can get away with hitting a deer with a rifle smack on the shoulder. The yeah. shock is just going to kill him. 
Sure. The uh, one of the things I've struggled the most with, and I'm starting to overcome, was I would aim too much in the center, mm-hmm. uh, center height wise. I'm talking, not center uh, left and right. Mm-hmm. You know, I stay a couple inches back, but aim in center, and you know, if your arrow hits there, perfect. But I've been amazed at how, first of all, a, a lot of experienced bow hunters already know this, but how quick they can react and change. I've seen mm-hmm. differences in 12 inches at times <clears throat> the way they mm-hmm. duck arrows. They can. So, and that's the other point. Uh, do not shoot at a very alert deer because he will duck or she. Uh, you try to get them when they're uh, distracted. You try to get them, you try to shoot when they move that leg, front leg forward. It opens up the rib cage more. And um, um, so if he, if a deer smells you and he's looking around and he's on high alert, uh, I would say wait until he calms down or looks the other way and then release. Yeah, and I... It's a tough thing to do when you have a trophy buck standing in front of you. You want that deer. Absolutely. You got to train your mind. You got to think little steps. I think when you... For me, when I look at the big picture... That's when I make mistakes. When mm-hmm. I'm looking at the angle, it's like you gotta you gotta find a way to train your mind mentally, step by step, in execution. I know the more reps I have in the off season on target, the better prepared I am mm-hmm. for making that shot. You, you you said something earlier that I think is is huge. You said if your arrow hits in that shoulder bone, you're not gonna go through it. And there's a lot of people that think you can go through heavy heavy bones, and there's uh, there's also a lot more research available to people now in types of arrows, but I think the most common arrow setup that I've experienced is somewhere between three hundred, you know, and this is bows anywhere from fifty to seventy pounds, an arrow weight of maybe three hundred eighty grains up towards you know four hundred ninety five hundred grains, and a lot of hundred grain tips and expandables, and you know, not that they're terrible broadheads, but I mean, I've seen a lot of those. Uh, and let's face it, they're replacement blade broadheads. They're thin blades. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are aluminum ferrules, and if they hit that bone, they don't have the structural integrity to correct to handle that. Um, what I what I'm interested in there's people that people do talk about the right arrow setup that you can go through that. First of all, I would never recommend that to anybody, just because I haven't, I don't have enough experience to know that. But I do know that. Probably 95% of the, the arrows on the market and the arrow setups the hunters use, like, you've, you've got to stay away from bone. I took a, a deer, a dead deer that I had shot, and I hung it up on, a, on a, my tractor. And uh, I had a crossbow, and I stood six feet away from it, and I shot it square on that shoulder, and it did not go through. On, like, the, uh, like the, right the on scap- joint? Yeah, right on that joint. Was it? Did, did you set the deer up? So it would have been hanging upside down, kind of deal. Uh, I hung it up by the uh, by his neck. Okay. Yeah. So then you would have had it kind of facing you, like a quartering towards situation. Uh, no, it was it was vertical. Okay. Oh <clears throat> but, yeah. But I, uh, you know, I purposely shot. You know, I felt where the bone was, mm-hmm. and that was a spot where I wanted to hit, just to see what that arrow would do, and it, it did not go through that shoulder blade. I've the, did... the point would go through, but it just would not. And, and and the rib cage narrows down at that point anyway, so you're not shooting at any vitals anyhow. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many videos too of people pushing products, and uh, maybe they shot deer quartering towards them, which is is a low percentage shot. Very you can low. Do it, um, but they'll talk about the, the one I'll never forget was it was a doe that came in quartering towards um, 
moderately, not real heavy. You, mm-hmm. you know, you could easily get both lungs, but the arrows slipped in uh, right behind the joint of, you know, I'm going to, like, what would that be? The humerus and the scapula, I guess mm-hmm. that would be. And it slipped in right behind that. And uh, it was, it, you know, exited mid-body. It was a double lung hit, very, very quick kill. And I was so horrified that the person who shot the deer and was brought, uh, uh, sharing this with, with the viewers said that that arrow blew through the shoulder. And it there was absolutely no destruction, no crack, no sound of it hitting bone. And, uh, you know, you said about the crossbow, there's, there's a lot of people that believe that you can consistently mm-hmm. and that's the thing consistently mm-hmm. break through bones and, and that situation where you had a, uh, set a deer up and shot it with a crossbow that one did not now are there cases where you break bone and arrow sometimes but it's not consistent and you're talking no. about um you know that statistic we talked about earlier like the, the the percentage of deer recovery i mean why do you want to set yourself up with a low percentage shot in the first place it, the arrow loses so much kinetic energy when it hits a bone because you have a point the ferrule, and then you have the blades coming out at, a, at an angle, right? So when that hits and penetrates that blade, it's already pushing it off to the side. So you're losing kinetic energy, whereas a bullet would just blow right through that. The, it's just so incredible. If there's any angle whatsoever involved at all. Right, right. Um do you think that certain? I mean, I, I personally think. I wonder what you like. Do you see on 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 the tracks you've been on? Like you said, you use a slick trick broad, and then you've seen probably in a, a ton. Do you see better penetration in in any set of cross from from different broadheads? Um, fixed blades pe- penetrate better than expandables, and I think that's why people uh, you know go with the uh, uh, expandables on crossbows all the time because you have so much kinetic energy. They're flying out of there so fast, mm-hmm. so that it once it expands, it it can it can uh, uh, blow through that deer because it has so much kinetic energy in there because it's using up so much to have those blades kicked out. Right. Whereas a, a fixed blade, you know, would just slice right through that real quick and uses less kinetic kinetic energy. Mm. Um, y- you know, it, using uh, expandables with a, a vertical bow is to me is like a crutch because you're not having perfect arrow flight with your fixed blade. So you should uh, get somebody that can uh, set up your bow that your arrow will fly true with that fixed blade. And you're going to be much better off with a fixed blade, in my opinion, than than uh, on average. And I think that's the key thing. You've got to understand your arrow setup. And I think yeah. that, that like, if you have a – regardless of where anybody stands on the arrow arguments, you cannot – no, nobody would ever have a ground to stand on if you argue that we don't want perfect arrow flight and a, and a structurally sound arrow, mm-hmm. um, something that's going to hold integrity if it hits bone. Um, God forbid that it would do that. But those are two key points you can't do. And if you have perfect arrow flight, um, I, I've, I've developed that opinion too. Like why would you want to use an expandable broadhead? I think it, is, it does a great job of masking up issues. And I've been down that road. I used to struggle. I had a bow that shot like 300 feet per second with my setup, but I was having such a hard time steering my fixed blade broadheads that I went to expandable broadheads. And uh, mm-hmm. it took time for me to learn how to tune my bow and, mm-hmm. and do what I needed to do to get a, a fixed mm-hmm. blade broadhead to fly. Mm-hmm. The advantage to uh, in, and a big selling point with expandables is they do when once you hit the deer square and uh, you have 
your your arrows flying uh, 300 feet per second, 280, 290, whatever, uh, it'll cut a big hole through deer if it mm-hmm. doesn't hit bone or you know just a rib or something. Um, it can, but if you have any uh, of an angle on it or bone issue. Um, it, it's a detriment. Sometimes. It's it's gonna the biggest detriment is a lot of times is penetration. Penetration. And no, nobody nobody ever lost a deer because they penetrated too much. Correct. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, you know, uh, there's there's a like I said, there's a, I know there's a huge push right now, and there's a lot of talk about heavy arrow setups and and developing it. There, I know there's there's people pushing cut on contact heads forward of center on their arrow weight mm-hmm. and shooting arrow setups goodness six seven eight hundred grains um i mean for whitetails to me it sounds a little bit overkill but i mean in that case it's a, a very lethal setup um i, I haven't really done, i mean I've, I've still kind of gravitated to that i think i'm like at four 80 right now with a fixed blade head and it, it's it's done really well for mm-hmm. me mm-hmm well, you know, the heavier the setup, the the quieter the bow is going to be, right? And uh, the more accurate it's going to be, and the more kinetic energy you're going to have, as opposed to a real light setup. Right. So, um, real quick, I want to go back to to the dog track real quick thing, but I, I know you're a busy man, farmer, and you got stuff to do here. But I was I was kind of curious. So you were talking when we did the track with Otis. You had uh, you had some those those deer. Uh, feet mm-hmm. that you put on your, your tracking shoes and you kept so when you um, when, when somebody harvests a deer I mean do you consistently save uh, parts of the deer for, for keeping tra- tracking? Yeah I, I have a supply of blood and um, hoofs hoofs from deer that have been uh, shot with a bow and you keep that for in a, in a freezer right and I use that for uh, training so if somebody wanted to go about this route there's there's a lot of resources out there if they wanted mm-hmm. to try to get a dog and do this there's a lot of resources mm-hmm. but that's some of the things that you should be acquiring I'm assuming yes and w- one of the best things they can do is uh, join the United blood trackers mm-hmm. and if you want to fu- if you want somebody to track your deer you can go to the UBT website and uh, click on find a tracker and then uh, uh, the map of the states will come up, and you click on that state, and everybody that's uh, uh, registered with them, their name and phone number will come up, and, and you can choose somebody that's uh, close to mm-hmm. your area. And there's a, a wealth of information on there that uh, <clears throat> not just uh, a dog uh, trainer could use, but a hunter could use. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of blogs on there and... and uh, uh, different resources uh, you can buy, uh, different tracking shoes, l- leashes, things of that nature. So it, it's a well worthwhile investment to join at UBT. Definitely a time investment too. It is. <laughs> it's been worth it for you, I'm sure, in plenty of times. I enjoyed it, and uh, you know, I get as much fun out of finding somebody's big buck as if I shot one, shot it myself. It's just that adrenaline rush, you know. You you have so much time and training in that dog. You're trying to figure this out. The hunter can't find a deer, and uh, you're trying to put the puzzle together with a dog. You're go- you're going along on part of the hunt. It, it's part of the hunt what you're doing. Oh, absolutely. It's a team. You know, a dog, a a, a, a tracker and a dog are a team. They got to work together to to find that deer. So we talked a little bit earlier about some of the stuff that sets up uh, that messes up tracks for a dog, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot. The one thing you said about was was grid search and kind of wafting scent around, mm-hmm. and you know, we're 
you know, early season open here, you know, in 5C and 5B mm-hmm. and 2B in Pennsylvania. We're open. There's, you already said you were on one track this year so far. Mm-hmm. and uh, But the, the, the heart of it is, is coming in, uh, well, when this airs, it's going to be coming tomorrow. Um, and there's going to be a lot of people out there that are, are going to have bad hits. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So um, for somebody who's a beginner and intermediate level when it comes to following tracks and stuff, um, if they've got a bad hit, what are what what can you recommend to somebody with a bad hit if if it takes them to the point where they need to get a dog, what's what's some what's some do's that'll help you and help the dog, and what's some don'ts that are going to kill you? Well, do um, do not walk on the track. Walk off to the site. Mark the hit site. Mark the 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 blood trail as you're tracking it. Uh, and if the blood runs runs out, back out and call a dog. If you have uh, if you hit, if you double lung them. You're gonna follow the blood trail, right? And uh, if if you if any idea that you're gonna need a dog, uh, back out. Mm-hmm. That's the number one thing. Don't bump the deer. Yeah, they always give say, it time. When give in it doubt, time. Back out. When in doubt, back out is the number one in my opinion. Yeah, and I mean, it, when you got that adrenaline rush, calling somebody like yourself, calling somebody who's more experienced, calling somebody that isn't in the adrenaline rush to talk you through something mm-hmm. is a huge, mm-hmm. huge thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for recovering a deer, I mean that could be the difference in you getting it, and not really, because it might be enough to calm you down and really assess what happened. Mm-hmm. Patience seldom goes unrewarded. <laughs> but patience is something we don't have a lot. Of That's in, true in today's world. A good friend always told me that. I'm, I'm guilty of that. Um, one of the things that I I always try to do if I'm following a track is have something to consistently mark last blood. Like mm-hmm. I usually have like toilet paper or some mm-hmm, kind of paper mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I. Um, you know, I think it was two years ago when uh, I think my, my buddy and I called you and, and you came on a track and, and we did it. And unfortunately, we didn't recover the deer. It went off onto a property. We didn't have permission. We kind of kind of lost blood. And it was it's an unfortunate thing, but it, it, it happens. Um, but, you know, we, we, we took you to the site of the hit and you asked us a bunch of questions. And, you know, I had marked, um, we, we both marked blood as we were going because we knew it was a, a rough hit and mm-hmm. kind of went through and you know you were asking your questions and I was trying to not blabber I wanted you to be able to ask the questions to get the information he said at one at one point throughout the track you looked at me and just said you guys did good and I was like oh that made me feel good I was <laughs> I was like I, I'll take that as a compliment <laughs> um, I, I've been on too many stuff I've screwed up so that at least even though we didn't get the deer that was we all make mistakes yeah you know the thing is, try not to make them twice. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. Um, well, hey Otto, I know you uh, your time is valuable. You got you probably got some farm work to make. You going hunting tonight? I might. <laughs> Do you, uh, you, you shoot a slick head or two in in the early season if you can shoot it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good good time of year for doing that. Well, mm-hmm. hey, we'll uh, we'll let you go here. I uh, again, I really appreciate you taking me and showing me that track. It was just really interesting to watch how the dog worked, um, mm-hmm. seeing that crosswind stuff and, and just, I, I think one of the things we didn't even talk about this, but like watching the dog use the crosswind made me realize how much, um, four legged critters use their nose outside of just directly sending. It. I mean, you, you've, you were talking about thermals earlier. Like you've probably been able to 
see things in the woods and, and, and put together situations how a deer would use thermals in the woods that you wouldn't see normally just because you're, you're not paying attention to it the same way that a dog did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting stuff. And on, on that note, you know, one thing, you know, how uh, a dog can smell that good, a deer can smell that good. So scent control, wind direction when you're hunting. If, if you expect a deer to come out in a certain spot and the wind is blowing to that spot, do not hunt that stand. That's huge. I mean, that, you can fool his eyes, but you cannot fool his nose. You can fool his ears, too, but not his nose. You got that don't right. Don't smoke. Don't um, get any uh, foreign odors on you. Eliminate as much as you can. But these mature deer, they're an animal. They're a breed of their own. They're so smart. The young two-and-a-half-year-old bucks three-year-old bucks you know they're not the same as a five-year-old buck they make mistakes a lot more than a a five and that's why uh, a (laughs) five-year-old makes it to that point exactly i mean there's uh i know i know some people who consistently shoot mature deer and they've said there's been times where they'll they'll Mm -hmm. uh, skin and and uh, Mm -hmm. butcher a mature deer that they shot and has previous wounds on its body Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um they've been educated they've been educated and there's uh, i still think there's how many Hundred hundred thousand bow hunters in Pennsylvania, and mm-hmm. there's uh, there's plenty of education to go around. But I mean, you talked about scent control. I mean, I've gone down that rabbit hole so many times trying this and trying that. I try to keep my outer clothes clean, but I still think some of the best the the best scent control in the world is blowing your wind where they're not going to smell Absolutely. you. Absolutely. <laughs> there's no question. There's no substitute for that. Yeah, somebody was telling me that uh, I don't know how they would do this. It was a it was a study done. Uh, monitoring how many different scents a deer can pick up at one time, mm-hmm. and the the way this study worked, they they determined that there was like almost half a dozen scents that a deer could distinguish between at one time. So people talk about cover scents, mm-hmm. you know, like here we are on a farm. You know, you've got you've got hogs here, and you know, mm-hmm. this farmers got chicken manure and, and manure and stuff, and you know, I've I've heard of people doing stuff like hanging their clothes over a manure pit and stuff mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. going to mask their scent. And it doesn't mask your human scent. Um, it's it, that that's huge. That's, that's why it's so challenging, deer hunting. Mm. They're so smart. They're so intelligent. And uh, you know, you got to remember, you're hunting them in their bedroom. They know where everything is. And if something's out of place or something doesn't smell right, they know that something's wrong. And a lot of the places that I hunt, there's terrain. And mm-hmm. I found that some of the best bedding areas are the places the wind swirls the most. Mm-hmm. That's why they're in there. And, and Exactly. It's why they're in there. Mm-hmm. And I haven't figured out how to hunt some of them. You can't. You almost can't. Yeah, I agree. You almost can't because it's it's too risky. Um, you know, there's there's probably cases and points, and that's a whole different strategy. But, I mean, you're, you have your own farm that you're doing things, and you're trying to hold deer on your property, and I hunt some private land where you do the same. And, and I don't want to be too intrusive because I want to I want to hunt mm-hmm. as many opportunities as possible and not ruin it. Now, there's probably cases and points on public land where, you know, if, if I'm going to – if somebody's going to mess it up, it might as well be the one I'm going to go for broke and try to kill a buck. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's very, very site-specific. Um, it's just amazing how good their nose is. But, again, it was just really incredible to watch how Otis worked and, and mm-hmm. his nose. Um, any, was there anything that I, I missed in a, in a dog track that you, you think you'd ought to bring up to somebody before I let you go? Mm, we hit the basics. I mean, there's so many different things. 
Mm-hmm. But I um, mean, we could talk all day about uh, different conditions and things like that. And at the end but of the day, then, I think the biggest thing is just having people understand that, you know, how, how long has it been legal to, to use dogs in Pennsylvania? Uh, a few, a couple of years. I know Andy Benson sure. was the, uh, he was the spearhead for that. He got that through. Right, and I think as that's grown in popularity mm-hmm. um, and people know about it, they, they're they not educated on it. So, I mean, using a dog track, like, like I learned a big thing, too, because I've been on tracks where you follow till you get to last blood, and then I, you know, we get people together in grid search because that's the only option we had prior to Correct. that, and that's yeah. not a bad method, but... Now that you have this resource and, and you can you can reach out and you know use United Blood Trackers and and find people like yourself because there's people in the area that do this. Oh sure, uh, people across the state, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that that's a valuable thing right there in, in recovering your deer. So you know waiting is big, but I mean not messing the track up if you have that option to use a dog. I think it's big. It's a game changer. It has to be. It it's a game changer. Well, Otto, I hope I don't have to call you at all this season. <laughs> I hope I don't have to call you at all, but um, you know you've uh, you've been a wealth of knowledge. I've, I've I've called you on a couple other hits just to, to pick your brain, just because you know somebody like yourself who gets to see a ton of tracks, um, you know, talking about where arrow placement you thought went in, the type of penetration stuff, you know, you, you can't replace that, and that's just stuff that just to, to bounce off. So I mean, I thank you for being a resource for myself, and thank you for for chatting with me today. My pleasure. So we'll uh, we'll catch you later, and good luck this year. You too.